Welcome to First Principles, the Ken's Fortnightly Leadership Podcast. I am Rohin Dharmakumar, your host. First of all, if you're a new listener to this podcast, then I really think you've clicked on the right episode. And if you're a long-time listener, thank you by the way, then you might know that here at First Principles we have a few favorite questions. And we try and ask these questions to most of our guests. The most interesting part of this is that every guest It's a vastly different answer to the same question. Their age, experience, outlook on life, even their co-founders or their family play a significant role in how they answer our questions. Take motivation for example. What drives founders and CEOs even when things aren't looking so good? It could simply be untamable perseverance. and that today is i think my single biggest advice it sounds like a you know monotone i keep saying the same thing like a repeat to people to youngsters is that just hang in there don't give up too early because so many businesses haven't seen the light of day because someone gave up too early and it's not only my story i remember so uh, it could be other people for example or people who have grown up with you in your teams and you sit back and say wow i mean this person has transformed in 4 5 years or this person has completely and i think that gives you that satisfaction to come back again and say how many more heroes can you create it could even be a book nps was minus 27 and that's the first time i i knew that nps could be negative i thought zero was the worst that you could go to and and anyway so i was I was flummoxed, basically, and then I chanced upon this book, Rohan. I I chanced upon this book called Uncommon Service. It's a HBS authored book by this uh, lady professor called Frances Frey. She's right now on the. Uh, We went back to some of our older episodes to make a supercut of some very specific answers from our guests to questions on motivation, perseverance. finding the right opportunity in a difficult market and fighting stress good stress as one of our guests calls it i highly recommend going back and listening to our full episodes you'll find the links in the show notes but this is a great place to start too Let's start with Deep Kalra, the founder and chairman of Make My Trip, a company that began when India wasn't even ready for internet businesses. Deep talks about surviving as a travel business through the pandemic, learning to stay in the game and building to last. You were one of the first tech companies from India to list. You listed on Nasdaq. When do, when was that? Yeah, we listed in 2010. it was august 2010 and we were definitely the first actually interestingly we were the second internet company from india to list sadly the first listing didn't work out very well that was redef redef.com which was i think ahead of their time uh, ajit balakrishna is a real visionary and i have a lot of respect for the gentleman learned a lot from him uh, but you know i think at that point of time the market just wasn't ready to support a model which was non transaction to your point 
so that had already become, I think, they got delisted, became a penny stock. So when we listed, we were the first travel company from India to list uh, uh, on NASDAQ or in the US. And we were, I guess, one of the first few tech uh, companies, internet companies to list there. Would you remember how much of venture capital you had raised before you listed? Oh, yeah. It's not not hard to this thing. We'd done four rounds and I probably remember the total of each. So uh, the first round, we'd got five into the company. Four was to buy out uh, angels. Second round was probably about 10, 20. So I'm just going to... I'm going to say about 70 million or so. All right. Yeah. 70 million. If you were to like start a new Make My Day, if, if Make My Trip didn't exist and you were starting it today, would 70 million dollars be enough to build a business? I think it could have been because A, that happened over a 10-year life cycle. And first five years, as you know, we just struggled. So really, those four rounds were between 2005 to 2010. Um. Uh, I think we do it very differently. I do it very differently today. How I would so? definitely have one less zero in the number of people. I would love to say two less zeros, but that's very hard to do. I mean, uh, I, I would love to be more pure play, which is very hard in a transaction business. But still, uh, I think given where AI is today and just, you know, of course, the Internet's on fire right now with ChatGPT and I've been pulling around and playing with it and just having the time of my life. I think you can do much more today with tech. And with AI, which is really going forward, with I think fewer it's people, much fewer people, and more reliably and better. So I think we'd structure the business differently. But given competition, given the cost of advertising, etc., today, I think that would would probably take the number back up again. So maybe we'd end up in you know 100 million or so. But less than 100 million today is pretty hard to build a brand in India. It's become a very competitive space. Do you want to tell us why you listed in NASDAQ at the sure. NASDAQ in 2010 and whether today, given that listing in India is a viable option, how that route has changed for other startups as well? Sure. And, and you know, it was viable even then to list in India. And Rowan, that was the one decision where I think the board, our board was split down the middle. Till then, we had a pretty harmonious board. And I can say I, I thought we did a good job of managing a good board, etc., but when it came to listing, firstly, uh, it sounds a little strange and crazy, but I didn't think we could list at that point of time. It was uh, Sanjeev Bikchandani who, who was on our board as an independent. Sanjeev told us, listen, your numbers, he was at a board meeting in, it was the last quarter of 2009. Yeah, the, so in January, we were reviewing the last quarter of 2009. We had a board meeting in Jan and he says, I think you guys are ready to list. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, we listed in 2007 and we were smaller than you guys. And you guys are growing so fast and you're doing this thing. You should think about listing. And I remember Rajesh and I looking at each other and saying, seriously, like we, we can, we want to eventually. We didn't know. He says, you should. So the next question was where? And um, so there were many pros and cons for both markets. And the US and, and I had, you know, three US-based investors on the board. And all three of them were obviously pretty keen on the U.S. market because they understood that well. The independents were pr pretty keen on India. I mean, you know, just being Indian, having grown up in India and, you know, done all my education in India, I was very excited about India and we would get the big advantage of brand in India. But the markets just weren't ready. So it was a pretty heated debate. I seek time out for a week and I said, okay, folks, I'm going to give me a week. I'll come back. 
And for that week, I literally spoke to as many people as I could who had experience in listing in both markets and, you know, wise men. So I remember reaching out to Nandan, who I knew a bit. Nandan put me on to Mondas Pai, was very helpful, generous with his time, gave me, you know, half an hour of his time on the phone and told me about their experience. Infosys, which had always been kind of a North Star for us, the way they had built that company, the culture, the, you know, very, very wide spread out stock. So I was always inspired by him. He spoke about it. Uh, one of my classmates and good friends from IIM Ahmedabad had been on the board of Bharti and few other companies from Warburg Pincus, uh, this is Pulak uh, Prasad. I spoke to Pulak and Pulak gave me his point of view. Uh, I spoke to, interestingly, um, on Mobi, uh, not not Naveen's company, not uh, in Mobi, on mobile. Rajesh, list, yeah, Rajesh. Yeah, yeah, I spoke to him, and at that point, Rajesh in time, Reddy. Uh, I think there was a Rao gentleman. No, sorry, sorry, my bad. That's that's different. That's right, uh, Arvind Rao. Arvind. So I spoke that's to right. him, and a bunch of people who had listed in both markets, and they had you know one or the other, and a good point of view. Uh, Ajit Balakrishna and and few others. And net-net, I came to the conclusion that I didn't listen to the bankers then because the bankers were very clear. Like the foreign bankers wanted to list in the US, the Indian bankers wanted to list here. There was a bias. So I came to the conclusion that India wasn't ready for internet businesses, despite Nokri having listed and done well, which was InfoEdge. And the fundamental difference was InfoEdge was collected their money from enterprises. They, we were their clients and we would cut them a check and they had salespeople. But everything online was free, right? Making a CV, etc. Yes, they tried to charge a little bit more. So it was a very different business from ours. Ours was a classic B2C business. So I came to the conclusion that US has got, I think I'd already counted at that point, close to 100 online businesses, of which a third were international. So a lot of Chinese companies had listed there, some you know Latin American companies. They'd all listed on the NASDAQ, by and large over NYSE. And, you know, that's what we went with that. And uh, at that point of time, I think it was the right decision. And absolutely today, India is just so exciting. So, yeah, I mean, I think given the right point of time, we definitely uh, would. I, I mean, it's already out in the open. So we would we would look at it. There's no question. You've seen travel end multiple yeah, times. Yeah, really. And in also the SARS epidemic and... So, but for those next four years, I think the only thing one kept going, there was there was no money. I mean, the two years, uh, what kept really you going? no compensation. I think I was just very, very uh, fixated for two reasons. So one reason was, I think the logical reason, which is we were getting better at what we were doing literally week on week. So I always kept metrics uh, very close to heart. It was the most important ratios were improving. So conversion was improving is the most important ratio and uh, repeat in our business then we were selling us india tickets repeat was very hard to measure because people came once frequency is so low yeah exactly so but conversion was definitely improving coca was improving cost of customer acquisition so we, unit economics were getting slightly better so we just needed the lines to intersect revenue and cost right but we needed fuel for that so there was a logical thing that listen we are getting better at whatever we are doing people like our service they do refer us we had a referral program everything and the second, I think, was not such a logical reason, but was probably stubbornness or whatever it's called. But I think to prove to myself that, you know, I can do this because I was I was mortally afraid that if I fail now, I won't have the guts to do another venture. Because AMF Bowling, which was not my venture, had also been a failure. So I couldn't afford another one. Two dots make a line. And I 
I think for me, it was a little bit more, a little bit more. And that today is, I think, my single biggest advice. It sounds like a, you know, monotone. I keep saying the same thing, like a repeat to people, to youngsters, is that just hang in there. Don't give up too early. Because so many businesses haven't seen the light of day because someone gave up too early. And it's not only my story. I remember, so uh, we were in discussion together with uh, with two of my early stage guys, both in the downturn who became co-founders. And I, we had an offer from a very large company and talk about it now, Ascendant, which is really big in travel. They owned uh, the GDS, which is called Travelport now and all. This is way back in 2003 or four. I had not drawn a salary for 18 months. There was stress at home, no matter, like it was all our savings, life savings, everything gone. And uh, these guys had taken big cuts, 50 and 70% cuts they were on. And we had an offer and I was going in for this meeting. It was a luncheon meeting. Our office was in Nanchini and we decided internally, if we get an offer of 10 million, we'll sell. We'll agree. These guys started with five. Nothing. I was, went on and on and. Finally, we inched it up to, I think they went up to about seven, seven and a half, something like they said seven and they mumbled a little bit more and the meeting ended. And I was actually very relieved. But that you this, did not have to make that call. Had they said 10, I had said, yeah, because we had got very desperate. So I think somewhere along the way, we also got lucky uh, along the way that these things didn't happen. But if we didn't, we would have sold out. And I heard the same story from uh, Sachin Bansal at a conference once. Where Sachin said that we agreed to sell the company for, I think, 5 or 10 million. Uh, verbally sold it. We were going through terrible times. Only books that time. Came back and they had an advisor he didn't name. Who He says, And Bola, you're building a good thing. Hang on. Keep at it. And they went on to build India's most valuable, I guess, internet business, if you think about it. So, I think, um, basically... If you know, it, it comes from the gut and there needs to be some stubbornness. But if you are doing it, you're doing something right. Just that giving up too early, that's the easiest thing you can do. And, you know, they say first sign of winter, you just say, I call it quits and all because opportunity cost, you say, is so high. That's where your linkage of the money question comes in. That's why I'm the point. The money, yeah. the, what is the opportunity cost? I mean, if you look at your lifespan of earnings, most of us will work for, you know, 30, 40 years or whatever it is. And we all know at the peak, you'll more than make up. And especially if you're building your own business, the wealth will solve for itself. But are you doing it for the money or are you doing it for the satisfaction? And anyone in the world who's been there, done that, will tell you the satisfaction is far more important because you almost don't know what to do with more money beyond a certain point. Again, it's easy to say in the early stage of life, you need the money. I was ready to sell the business that time. I own 55% of the business, something like that. I said, That's a lot of money, man. You know, sell the business, get out or management held 55 or most of that was probably mine. And it would have been, I would have, I think, kicked myself every second day when someone else came up and this, when travel became such a big category, online travel and when someone else IPO'd and someone said, oh my God, we were there, we had a better service. So living with regret is very hard. And the only way not to have that is eke it out, eke it out, eke it out till you have nothing left. And as they say, and then some. So run on fumes, do it. What will happen? So long as you're surviving, you're providing for, you know, your family. Then you can at least say, listen, I tried it. It didn't work. And sometimes don't be stubborn about how you do it. I think you have to tweak models. 
but definitely be resolute maybe that's a better word than stubborn about like we are building something special i think the rest solves for itself and you know i i'm very sure you're going to do that at ken too and i know you're not chasing money right now i mean i see what you guys are building it's just quality and quality means you know followership readership word of mouth and all the good things happen but if it, if you don't have quality at the end of the day I mean, there's no point I mean, why do you were, you were better off doing what you were doing so i think it's the opportunity cost is was i happier and for me i was miserable being a banker i made great friends i'm still very close to the crew there the avian amro crew set up indusind bank my first boss uh bosses were ramesh sopti sohel chandar people i just absolutely adore and love and they taught me a lot but i was not cut out to be a banker and i was unhappy and the simple test of being unhappy is you start looking at your, the clock and i tell people even here all our new joinees if you're looking at the clock whether it's a meeting or it's time to go home in the evening means you're not enjoying what you're doing it probably means you're not enjoying you know, you what should, you're doing might as well it's like go back yeah. to college yeah there were classes you don't know where that one hour went and there were classes where the damn clock wouldn't move we all know that right i've counted seconds in some classes it's so sad like you just want it to end but the meetings where you're having fun like i'm having a blast here i could talk for 3 hours you'll miss your flight but uh it's it's just you're having fun so i think that is the most important thing for a very simple reason not because you're not bored or something because you'll give your best when you're having fun so we are value one of our core values at work is fun at work one of our core values if you're not having fun please you're God, in the wrong can i just go deeper into something uh, yeah yeah sure, sure. Way, please you should no no we should cut yeah that's i'm fine um one of the things that you said is that i was miserable if you're miserable at work it's a signal right at some some level right like i'm saying that you also said that when you were going through your toughest times 18 months not taking a salary you were also incredibly frustrated at what you were doing so if i were to compare like you know to to a lot of people it would assume from the outside that you were unhappy in both situations while you were working for a large bank you were unhappy while you were working for your own startup also one i'm not using the word unhappy here exactly. because i know it's not unhappy yeah, exactly. but how does someone from the outside sense that even though you were incredibly frustrated and probably at times broke and just looking to sell out you were not unhappy there yeah and yeah. in the other context you are actually getting a good salary but you are unhappy no no what it's a, it? it's a great point firstly who cares if someone from what they think from the outside right it's your thing because you've got to take that call hmm. the only other person who matters is your family your partner your spouse and you've got to come home happy now if you're enjoying and you're working hard and you're very satisfied at what you're building you're clearly not unhappy frustrated also strong word i think you sometimes get desperate right mm. because i mean there's no money that's there fundamental there is stress there is there but, is stress but it's, but like it's a good a, stress that's right yeah <laughs> it's good stress also you're saying listen but you're buzzing you're actually you almost can't sleep with excitement right you and can't you wait to, go, to back. go back i don't know if you do it even now sometimes when you can't sleep and you get ideas uh, earlier it used to be pen and paper now you just put it on the phone as a note because you probably forget it but you do get ideas i mean i i always take oh, some i have time. colleagues who get these calls from me late in the evening there you and go. they're like you know so i have I, a brain wave yeah yeah i take time to uh, normally uh, you know get to bed because the mm. mind's still active but it's great because you have those thoughts you put them in place and also i think there's a big difference so you can be stressed out i think that's the right word you can be stressed we stressed even today through covid we were damn stressed but there was no question of what we were to do i mean it was you know there was uh, i think a mission critical out there next 
we have Ruchi Kalra, who has built two profitable unicorns in seven years of business and Oxizo. She takes us through an important maxim that drives both her businesses, finding the right opportunity in the right sector, even if it's crowded. Ruchi, you're the second person on this show who's running a business which is essentially two unicorns within it. And I think that's like a very interesting thing for India to have that many entrepreneurs who are running multiple unicorns that have been spun out from the same business. But I thought it was a very interesting connection for us. The other person was Navin Tiwari, who started in Mobi and then started in Glance. Do you want to tell us which are the two unicorns you're related to? Okay, um, so very, very glad to be right here talking about both off business and Oxizo, uh, both unicorns and in their own standing individual standalone companies. And I think kudos to the entire team for off business as well as Oxizo uh, and uh, even the leadership for both the different organizations. Yes, both of them actually uh, came together from the fundamental idea that we wanted to cater to all B2B needs of the SME ecosystem. And as we saw that space, we realized that raw material on a standalone basis, which is essentially off business, the largest B2B marketplace, uh, is one opportunity. But along with that, credit was a standalone opportunity. And uh, as we saw the space, we saw an Wait, opportunity. I'm going to stop you here because you're going way too deep for oh, us it? to kind of begin with. Okay. We will, we will definitely go deeper into this as the podcast progresses. Yeah. But for now, let's just like, let me start by asking you, who's Ruchi Kalra like? Because I really had to struggle to figure out what is the title? What do I introduce you as? So let me put that to you. Who's Ruchi Kalra? What is her title? So I think uh, I'm an OFBN as we classify each person at Off Business on Oxizo as. Uh, but in terms of title, in terms of introduction, actually most of my time goes into Oxizo. So I'm the CEO for Oxizo Financial Services and very actively involved in Off Business or OFB tech, as they put it, uh, from a finance perspective. So yes, a co-founder at Off Business and the CEO of Oxizo Financial Services. Are you also the CFO of uh, of business? To, I used to in my in my in my prior role. I still You're play no that. Long. I still right. play that role. Yes, but most of my time goes into Oxys of financial services. Wonderful. So that's so so the connections between off business and Oxyzo are interesting. And of course, the fact that like, you know, the multiple co-founders who came together to start up. Yeah. Tell us about that. Like, tell us about how did off business, which was the first of the businesses, yes. uh, how, how did it come about? So this was late 2015. Um, uh, my prior experience was uh, with McKinsey and Company uh, as a partner there uh, in the financial services practice, uh, along with me, uh, other co-founders as Ashish. Uh, he was with Matrix Partners and prior to that in McKinsey and uh, prior to that with ITC. I happened to meet him at McKinsey uh, and my better half as well. And uh, Bhuvan, who actually leads technology uh, as a CTO across both uh, OFP and Oxizo. 
and uh, Basant and Nitin. So all of us kind of got together at that point in time in late 2015, 2016, early 2016. We saw that there was a lot of opportunity. In fact, that time you saw a lot of B2C startups. And because most of us came with like 10, 15 years of experience, we had seen the SME ecosystem. We'd seen like real businesses in manufacturing, infrastructure and so on and so forth, right? And we saw that there was a huge opportunity to actually build a raw material marketplace in this space itself and i'm, I'm, I'm gonna stop you there and ask you what is the um when you say i mean to a lay listener who's listening it's yeah. like you're saying we saw the huge material in the raw material space yeah. now take us back to while you were at mckinsey ashish was at like you know matrix etc what were you seeing as this what is this huge raw material opportunity how did it exist how were you coming across it in your day-to-day -day work, etc. How does a normal person spot it? What was this? Okay, so let me first describe what B2B is, right? So if you were to start with saying, okay, uh, you see a phone, you see a bottle, you see tables around you, right? So there is someone who's manufacturing things. You look out of the window, you see a road, you see a bridge, right? And there are pe there are enterprises who are building this, who are building India in terms of infrastructure, in terms of manufacturing, and that's the B2B opportunity, right? Whatever you see around. Uh, and... For us, we realized that the opportunity essentially would be saying, okay, there is steel which goes into building something. There is chemical which goes into actually all daily use items. Or there could be, for that matter, polymers that you're using in a bottle or for that matter in your furniture around, right? And when you see these raw materials, what happens in these raw materials? These are produced by very large manufacturers like, like a GSW, Tata, Sale, for steel for that matter. There is chemical and polymer, Reliance and all. Then it gets sold to a very large distributor. Then it goes sold to a next distributor and then it comes to the guy who's actually manufacturing end goods out of it like for example car parts auto parts right or for that matter like bottles and so on and so forth right so there are various layers in between and when we say b2b it is essentially the trade which is happening between these different nodes and when an off business sees this opportunity it's essentially saying that can i get goods or these raw materials directly from a man large manufacturer of raw material to these SMEs who are then using these raw materials to produce an end good and selling it to say a Maruti or say, selling it to... How do you do that? Where do you come in? Like prior to off business yeah. or like, you know, your sort of business models. I'm assuming that this trade already existed, right? Yes. So where do you come in and what do you do? Actually, the this trade that we're talking about is huge in terms of volume. Like, okay. for example, steel itself could be a 100 billion industry. Mm. Chemicals itself is a 300 billion dollar industry, right? In India alone, right? And when we say India essentially is the land of intermediaries, mm. right? And these intermediaries in between the large manufacturer of a raw material to actually a consumption guy on the raw material, the manufacturer who's actually using these raw materials, there would be three or four different intermediaries in between. One is co-located with the manufacturer of raw material. One right. is co-located with the SME of the raw material and someone in between. These intermediaries either stock, these intermediaries either finance, these intermediaries either insure goods are transported, right? So at each node, there is some margin that an intermediary keeps. But if you build a platform, which we intended to, and we actually saw that we could actually get the goods directly from a very large manufacturer to these individual SMEs, and hence leading to benefit for the SME as well, 
and a new channel of distribution for the manufacturer as well. And that's where Off Business was born. We started our journey more as steel as a raw material. Currently, we exist in nine different value chains, which includes um, industrial steel and construction steel, which includes chemicals, which includes polymers, which includes agri-products, which includes um, uh, materials like bitumen, so on and so forth, right? So, so, so if I were to try and draw an analogy, not an exact analogy, but in the B2C space or in the consumer goods space, it's equivalent of saying a local Kirana store shop cannot just go to a Unilever or PNG and say, I want to buy from you because yeah. at that scale and volume, they yeah. cannot. Therefore, there is a distributor layer, wholesaler layer, etc. and all that. Correct. And something similar exists in the B2B space as well. Yeah. And so you're essentially trying to Reduce the number of intermediaries yes. and make it a faster and more efficient. That's what off-business came up with. Yes, that's right. The The interesting part about the B2B space is that similar chains can exist for end products and similar chains can exist for raw materials. There are a few players who are there on the end product side. B2B, like for example, what you described, right? Let me break the chain for end products tra tra traversing from a Unilever to a retailer. Similarly, we'll say, okay, Let's go back and say this, to even manufacture that end product, you needed a raw material. That's the chain we break. Right from starting from a steel, which mm -hmm. goes into an infra guy to actually build the bridge. Or for that matter, if I take an agri example to it, then it's like, for example, you'll need almonds to make even the biscuit, which is actually going to get sold to a retailer, right? So an almond trade will need to happen, wherein you either will import or take it and then sell it to a very large guy like an ITC. I got that. Now, this chain in in many essences can extend all the way, you know, at one end to the consumer and all the way at the other end to wherever is the rawest form of yes, material, that's right? right? So, as of business, where is it that you folks say that, like, you know, we will play in or where, like, is there any part of this chain where you say this is not for us? And this is where we will play. Yeah. So for us, something that's very clear in our mind is in the true B2B way, we do not want to own a brand or something, right? So we are doing it for someone, right? Um, so our starting or genesis is the, with the fact that we will supply those raw materials, which are, for example, there are a lot of intermediaries in between so that there is real value to the platform and discovery. The second part is saying that, okay, if you need it, if you don't take it, someone else can take it. That's what raw material is. Finished goods is something that is manufactured to design and so on. So for mm -hmm. us at off business to start with, it has to be saying that you have to be in the raw, raw material side such that the consumer for us or the SME for us is himself a manufacturer who's taking that raw material and producing something to sell it to a larger anchor. Or, a, uh, or an interest. So the core sectors of the economy is where we want to be associated with. And these core sectors of the economy to produce the goods that they manufacture would need some of these raw materials that we have exist. So that's, that's the chain we will stay in. What motivates and drives you on a daily basis? Like deep down inside, what makes you get up and like, you know, constantly strive? Yeah. Um, so I'll actually compare it to my earlier days at McKinsey, I think, uh, or maybe earlier days, even in school, college, etc. So there was this um, uh, urge to do well, to prove yourself, right? Especially when you're, you're growing from, from, from the background, you just feel to say that, okay, you just need to, as if you're there to prove that you're good, right? 
I think um, as an entrepreneur, one big change that at least I see in myself is the fact that that suddenly that urge to prove yourself is not there, right? Suddenly that urge is more to say, okay, how well is the business doing, right? Suddenly you wake up in the morning and saying, okay, there are these things I have to do, right? And at the same time, it's, it's suddenly flipped to saying, how well are people around you doing? Around you in the sense, your team doing, right? And, and I think that completely shifts the gear. It says, okay, people... It's no are, longer about you. Yeah, it, it's it's suddenly that the pressure of, you know, trying to say to the world that you are, you know, you want to work hard so that you get good marks or you want to work hard to get a good job or you're at a good job but you get a, want to get a good rating. That suddenly changes from saying that, okay, um, what's the book size of Oxyzo? Okay, what else do I need to do? Okay, what do we need to do in this particular initiative? Or, for example, or people who have grown up with you in your teams and you sit back and say, wow, I mean, this person has transformed in four or five years or this person has completely... And I think that gives you that satisfaction to come back again and say, how many more heroes can you create? So this is very fascinating because I'm, I'm kind of zooming out and seeing what you're seeing here, saying here. What you're saying is that up till a particular time in school with your first job at McKinsey, etc., you were trying to prove yourself. Yeah. And at some point now, you have receded to the background. And I think the sense of achievement has allowed you to put the focus on your team members, your organization. I'm going to build others. That's that's it. So, and you wake up in the morning and you just feel that, okay, you, if you close your eyes to think about the top 20, 25 people who, in fact, our business has been a space wherein a lot of people have joined as freshers. Okay, and that that's been the core DNA, right? Right after college, or one year, two year experience, etc. And you close your eyes, and you find so many faces, and you say, okay, they grew up here, right? And, and you just feel that okay, there can be many more such people who will grow up here, and or people who've already grown up, you know, they themselves are entrepreneur in their own right. I mean, uh, whenever I'm in a conversation, and someone says, okay, you're you're this co-founder for for of business oxyzo to you and i'm like it's not me it, it it's those people who are standing along and i can't express it in those many words but i mean you can feel that energy and i think that's what gets me going and motivated to come to office every day are you a person who's motivated by goals or the journey um, goals are important because if you don't set goals, you cannot drive people to that journey. But whenever we set goals, I always tell my people, enjoy the journey, right? So the goal, you can achieve that goal and still not be happy because maybe you, you know, put someone under the bus, etc. So don't do that. I'm okay with if 80% or 90% of that goal is achieved, but do enjoy that journey. When you're at your lowest, yeah. what motivates you? Um, when I'm at the lowest, I think uh, it's people. Because you see and you see there are people who would have so many personal problems, but still they'll come to office and they'll give their best in office, right? And you're like, okay, I mean, things will come and go. Right. This too shall pass. Right. That's that's the statement that comes to my mind. And I said, OK, fine. I mean, we have to achieve something. 
and and uh, let's let's uh, uh, you know just just aim towards as you said the goal. And what there you- have been low times, by the way, in the sense professionally also. I think the second round that we were out there to raise, it was like massive set of rejections, right? And then uh, one fine day, like a lot what of the investors. That time B two B people didn't understand that much, and that this time, was what two thousand nineteen. Yeah, this was Series B, Series B, right? And and uh, there were a lot of these questions: credit, do you want to build a balance sheet? People at that time were more asset light and all those things, and we had this notion of building an NBFC separate and all those things, right? A lot, lot of those questions, and B two C was the flavor, and 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 rightfully so, right? Each investor has the right to have those pieces, and and. and I, Once I went to our office, it was another office, and you stood in that open area where you can see everybody sitting, and you're like, okay, you don't have a choice. Don't even think about when all you need is one investor, right? And and that's what keeps you going, right? That's what keeps you going when you look at people who put in so much faith. At that time, Zodius came through, and then Creation came in next, right? So uh, the fact is that you have to uh, when when you look at people who believe in you. Then that that lifts you up suddenly. Kamal Sagar, the founder of Total Environment, has had just one thing driving him for twenty-seven years: good quality. Good quality that he says, not even thousands of real estate companies in the West are not able to deliver on. The most interesting part is how he does it. Kamal builds homes the way software is built. Listen on. Kamal, I want to take you back to 1990, IIT Kharagpur, where you were a student, of course, and your thesis for which you got a C. Do you want to tell us why you got a C? <laughs> uh, well, so I was very clear at, uh, in college that I wanted to, whatever I was doing was. you know i wanted to do what i thought made sense and not necessarily do it just for the grades so uh, the thesis was uh, on sos children's village in bhubaneswar and so i had certain you know concept in mind uh, from understanding you know the the problem and decided that's how i'm going to do it uh, unfortunately my professors um had a very different idea they wanted me to do it in a certain you know in a very different way from that so uh but when i didn't uh listen to their recommendation and just did what i wanted to and i knew that i will therefore get a c so so i did that and i ended up with a c also i, I wrote uh, you know it, during those college years um, i had always been very rebellious so i also wrote uh, on the uh introduction to the thesis that this thesis is dedicated to renu and sharuk mistri which is where i did my training here in bangalore uh i said it's dedicated to renu and sharuk mistri for restoring much of the confidence taken away from me by this department so i submitted it with that <laughs> so, <laughs> so in many ways you were asking for it i was asking for it absolutely there was also this we first spoke about this when we first met back in 2011 um and one of the things that you spoke about was also your belief about integrating plants greenery yeah. into architecture where as i understand one of the feedback that you got was is this makes no sense it's yeah. going to lead to seepage it's yeah. going to lead yeah. lead a lot of issues so remove all the plants and all that kind of stuff yeah 
So that was actually maybe when you said 1990, you meant that uh, thesis was 92. So 1990 was uh, a design uh, studio, and the, the design problem given to us was a school, a typical elementary school. And I had designed it in a ma- manner that the roof of the so the floor of the school was sunk three feet below ground level, so that the roof was at about five feet, at kind of eye level of the kids. And uh, so, therefore, it was sunk, and then the roof was completely green. It was landscaped. It had plants growing and all of that. And uh, my prof uh, was again; uh, he was very upset. He said, "You're going, you're going to have all these seepage issues, and if you're sinking the building down, the walls are going to be damp. How can you do something like this? I want you to put the building back up, remove all the plants and everything." And again, I didn't do that. I submitted the plans as as it was. And uh, on that day, he got very, very furious. He literally tore those sheets apart and threw them on the floor and stomped out of the classroom he was very upset um but yeah <laughs> that belief in many ways the idea of bringing nature in yeah into architecture and into homes etc is in many ways the i think the signature one of the signature themes of total environment today is that not it is uh so i think from the very beginning what was Uh, very clear is that if you're if you are designing and creating a home for a family, uh, one of the first things that any any human actually looks for is is that connection with nature. So, even if you are on you know the 14th floor of an apartment, you want to connect with with nature. So the question was why not? Why can't you do it? Why can't you just cantilever a a little garden space from the living room and fill it with soil and plants and 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 do that, and that's that's what we did way back in ninety six, ninety seven, and uh, every single home that we have done since then has that uh, garden, which yeah has become a signature. But uh, we didn't do it with the idea of creating like a USP or something. It was just common sensical to just do that. It was like this makes sense. Just just do it. So yeah, it's interesting that. You should say that because I went back to my notes, mm-hmm. and your first residential project was in 1996 in Bangalore, Cirrus yes. Minor. Yes. And from the notes, uh, it turns out that you actually made a loss. Yeah. Um, I think you earned about 1.12 crores uh, on the entire project while you spent 1.32 crores. 137 actually, yeah. 137. 25 right. lakh loss, which we knew at the beginning uh, that it's going to cost us that much, and. Um, Uh, also we had made some mistakes like we had not charged separately we didn't know we were just bunch of kids so we didn't know that you, you actually charge separately for car parks and things like that so we had not charged all of that and uh, anyway so we were uh, we were locked in with that number and um, and it was important at that point in time to you know establish the product and the you know the ideas that we had and didn't want to wait for 5 or 10 years to slowly get there so we wanted to build what we Wanted to build, and it was going to cost one thirty-seven. So there were only two options. One is, you know, build something mediocre, which didn't make any sense. It was better to then do something else rather than do that, or to, uh, you know, go back to customers and ask for more, which we didn't want to do. So we, so we just decided to build it. We, so the only way we could do that was to go out there and search for more projects. Which would help to, you know, finance this one. So and on your second did. project, you made a profit of. Eight lakhs. We set out with a profit of eight lakhs, but that's where we introduced the gardens. The very first project, Cirrus Minor, didn't have gardens, and that idea of bringing in the gardens came with the second one. And we introduced them later after having already sold them. So the eight lakh profit there also became a sixteen lakh loss because we ended up spending twenty four lakhs more on the, on the gardens. So, uh, 
yeah so but it was there was that very strong i mean i look back very strong inner conviction uh, you know uh, that we'll get past all this so it was there was never a doubt in the mind that we are asking for trouble that we are going to get stuck possibly or you know how we ever got that thought never crossed the mind it was very clear that you know so what okay this is fine we there is going to be another project we'll make up for this there's going to be a fourth project what motivates or drives you so sometimes i don't know i think it's that very in, uh, strong inner um uh and it's it's beyond what you can consciously control so it's uh, this inner drive or inner desire to make a difference and um possibly because you also feel very strongly that you can make a difference so you know that if i do this i'm going to make some impact or some positive contribution to people's lives and that you want to do it so could you help us i think pin it down like for instance when in your first few projects back in 1996 1997 what did that mean make a difference and what does make a difference mean today so maybe i can tell you a little bit with a few examples sure. so of how it actually has made a difference right so uh, we also have this project of ours in all the way in texas on the other side of the planet and uh, a few months back uh, we have an experience home there that we built which is uh, similar to uh, you know the kind of stuff we do here in our the same philosophy the same exposed brick and everything designed around the courtyard to bring the outdoors in and all of those things and this is a girl who uh, visited this uh, experience home just to check it out and uh, she walked inside and after a few minutes she started crying and our sales uh, head uh, candice walked up to her and asked her you know ma'am is everything okay can i help you and she said no I, i'm i'm fine i i grew up in a total environment home in bangalore and this brought back memories so those are the things that make you realize that you are making some difference to someone's life somewhere and and there are many other such um, you know stories of uh, things that have happened and that's uh, but back then uh at that you 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 asking me about when we started out right how did we yeah because the sense that i'm getting is that making a difference isn't doesn't seem to be an attainable goal in the sense that 26 27 years later you're still talking about making a difference so clearly it's a moving goal post of course and absolutely. it's definition changes yeah so i wanted to understand what was your definition 26 years 25 years ago and what is it today and what might it be Ten years from now. So, sure. So the so the definition hasn't changed, but I think it's it is an unattainable goal. So the aspiration at that time and continues to be even till today was to was uh, a few things. One was just quality that is reliable. So a home where things don't fall apart, they don't you don't have leaks, you don't have waterproofing issues, you don't have short circuit, just simple things. And you know, and it's surprising, but the world over. housing is a commoditized uh, thing right and anywhere in even in the western world quality is is bad just simple basic things don't work why is that because it this is, has existed yeah. for centuries absolutely yeah. thousands of years Correct. and it it there's incredible amounts of money involved yeah, absolutely there's all the talent in the world and yet why yeah. why why is it so so uh, yeah and if you look at the automobile industry which is what 100 100 years 120 years old uh there's a massive difference in the reliability between the two things uh i think 
the reasons are many um one is it is uh, such a basic need everybody needs a home uh so there's for the companies that are making the homes uh, uh, the, there's so much of low hanging fruit you just just make it and just deliver nobody is asking you to make it better so you you have to kind of get away with it that's why so nobody you know even wants to do it um the other thing i guess is that it's this whole project versus product approach right so the whole industry has worked on a project approach every project is started from scratch you figure out everything at that project level and when you're done with the project you close it and you go and start all over again with very little learning transfer to the next one whereas in in production it is uh, there's a product right uh, in, in manufacturing so you have an iphone Three, which becomes a four, which becomes a seven, and a thirteen, and the learning keeps, from each each one keeps improving, and because you're producing thousands of these, every small little detail gets that much more attention because you you know you're going to produce it in massive volume. So whereas that doesn't happen in this industry, in the construction industry, you're you're just doing a hundred homes or hundred and fifty homes. But why? There are large enough real estate companies that do. thousands and tens of thousands of this thing all over the world as well right so why Very few, isn't actually. there there isn't oh, no honestly there are no real estate companies are doing it all over the world there are people so real estate has been very localized there are large organizations that have gone out and tried to do Sorry, it sorry i meant that there are companies all over the world that build homes in the thousands each year right yes it may be in their own respective country like Correct. for instance perhaps to use an example maybe shobha developers yeah. in 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 uh, right. bangalore etc yes. and yeah. and um, lots more in the west correct so my question is again not to be any specific about any company why isn't there more of productization like you said uh it is it's just i don't know it's a, because we started doing the taking this product approach in 2008 and it's working really well for us so i honestly don't know why it's not been done in the past so Uh, I guess. What? What? The, what the, can I? Can I? Sorry, I'm. I'm sorry to be interrupting. But when you say that you started adopting a product approach in 2008, what does that mean in the context of homes? So, uh, so we had this project in uh, Kanakpura Road called the Magic Farway Tree, and there we had these 3,500 square feet duplex apartments, 72 of them in one building. And when I was doing the next project, and I wanted to design a similar size three-bedroom apartment, it just struck me. You know, I wasn't able to come up with a design that was better than this one. So I kept going back to this because whatever I was coming up with was not. And then it was like, why am I trying to do it again when I, when we already have something that's there and so good? And we should only try to do something different if it's better than this. Otherwise, you stick to this and keep improving this. So that was the. genesis of that that thought process but in parallel what is also going on in the mind is that if we can do it like a product we'll be able to imp- keep on improving it so we'll be able to give that much more attention to every little part because we we're going to repeat it so so we did uh, so we took the you know com- very consciously at that time decided to do we called this the D35 product and we decided to put the same thing in pune in a project called songs from the world in bangalore in uh, in in whitefield in uh, phase 2 of Magic Farvetry. We just repeated that same product. We made a few improvements. So we had D thirty five version two. What could this product be? When you say D thirty five, what what does it like? What does it mean when you say it's a product? Is it a design? Is it a? It's it's the it's the 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 unit, the home unit. So it's a three thousand five hundred square feet duplex apartment. So if you if you exclude the lobbies and the 
you know everything else in the building and just look at the home unit as a block that is the product so does that not change project to project because like you know the shapes of the buildings alter etc so are you saying that you, d35 so you can work you can take the d35 as a unit and uh, adapt you can you can combine it with other product units into a tower in different ways and uh, and you can you can repeat it yeah also and, the facade changes from the outside and then some amount of customization so you're saying essentially that 80% of it doesn't change actually the product doesn't change at all, at all. and the product doesn't work if you change even 1% of it oh, it has to be 100% the same or mm. uh, at least in terms of so we do we do a versions right so we have d35 version 2 so it is different from the version 1 but within version 2 whenever you're doing uh, you know version 2 anywhere it has to be 100% the same because that's the only way you can take advantage of the product approach where you're so repeating everything a version would include um ceiling heights room sizes yeah, where yeah minor things so like in the d35 version 2 for example the you know we made the shower cubicle a little larger we moved the the kitchen a little bit so that it would it would face in a slightly different way and get better light uh we changed the entrance so there's small so in many like, ways you're building homes the way software is typically built which yeah. is essentially you're exactly. constantly correct upgrading in fact uh because of e design and i think we spoke about that when you interviewed me for the can was that we are actually able to through e design incorporate those changes even along the way that's the software yeah. you have yeah. as well we'll yeah. come to that yeah. but i think i would be remiss if i did not tell our listeners what total environment means to many of us who've been in bangalore for a while because people would have heard 3500 square foot duplex apartments but total environment for those of us who've been in bangalore for a while is this quintessentially bangalore kind of apartments which are what many of us aspire to because like you know there are these giant apartments brick facades trees coming out of uh balconies and like you know exquisitely landscape etc and of course they're large like you know for those of you who are in bombay and like you know other cities it might sound like you know did we miss a decimal place here but perhaps no that's that's really what it is come on let's talk about software you said that in many ways how you build apartments is how people build software and you also have software of your own uh yes. proprietary software of your own uh tell us about that so uh you know from the beginning the other thing that we uh felt is very important when you're creating a home for someone is to be able to design it uh to work for them in every way not just uh, aesthetics and lifestyle but also functionality and everything else so so right from the beginning we would actually sit with every family and understand their needs and then design each home around their needs and of course uh you can only do a certain number of homes when you're doing it manually you would you know you're constrained by manually plan- means on a drafting sitting table down and, with yeah. a family listening to them understanding going back to the drawing board drawing making sketches and concepts and coming back uh, with uh, you know ideas to them uh so over a period of time as we scaled up and we're doing and when we signed up windmills of your mind for example at that time you know 400 units and everyone advised us that you'll have to now stop doing this right how can you do it for 400 and we were like you know this is something that is so important and it's working so well why there's no way we're going to stop this right so this implying customization of customize custom interior design you allow your customers to completely design you know redesign the interiors so that it works for them everybody is very different right there's a family with elderly parents there's another family with 
three kids or a newborn child somebody has got five you know three dogs somebody's got a sitar at home everyone's very different they all, all got all, all kinds of different requirements so so we always felt that you have to be able to uh, design around each family and we that's what we did from the beginning so so around the year 2008 when we were just about to start windmills we realized that now we have to kind of find a way to automate this process or to you know create a software that will allow customers to design it themselves and uh, but design it themselves not just choose options and not things where they could make a mistake so we we were very clear you can't allow them to make a mistake so it has to work all the different so it was uh, so it was very it wasn't very easy so in the beginning we did it uh, we did a makeshift version by 2010 uh, which is very you know i would say 20% automated and 80% still manual so we automated a few parts of the process uh and and we kind of still managed with that but around 2014 to 18 is when we we uh decided that we really need to now you know make this completely automated and we were fortunate to find this really good company called thoughtworks because um we needed a partner who would uh be willing to work with us and uh, get into the depths of what it takes to do this and not just treat it as another software project but really get into brainstorming thinking finding s- solutions because uh you know when you're moving walls in a home and with the walls the switch points are moving and the beds are moving and everything is moving how do you actually control all this right so it wasn't a straightforward uh you know linear thought process that you just these are the steps you automate it like this and it's done it is something where you have to really rack your brains about you know how is this going to work so we found thoughtworks uh med lords of uh, you know long sessions with them and a very very uh, committed team there and our team uh, the design team is also you know very committed to that so they worked very hard for four years from 2014 to 18 and then we eventually had this platform by 2018 which we call e-design which through a seven stage process allows uh, a customer who buys a home from us to log in and um, design starting with stage 1 which is the wall position so you actually design uh the floor plan of your home so you could have purchased a three bedroom apartment with three bathrooms from us but you could actually redesign it to have a home office or to become a two bedroom or to add a you know a maids room or a, a you know or, or or make some of the rooms larger or smaller make the you know do away with one bathroom or make the kitchen larger anything and then in the second stage you go into every space that you have now closed on go into every individual space and design decide on the furniture layout how do you want the furniture laid out within that room and then once you're done with that then you go into something called the uh, feature enhancement stage where you then add air conditioning or central vacuum or whatever and then and then there's a design studio where you actually select the materials and and then there's functional planning where you go into every wardrobe or a cabinet and decide on the interior shelves and spacing and drawers and all of that and then finally you go into the electrical where you actually select all the switch points what switch connects with what light point and th- things like that and then the last stage is a store where you can actually just go to the store and purchase light fixtures or loose furniture items or rugs or vases and things like that so this whole seven stage process allows you to to completely design your home the way you want it uh this sounds probably. incredible it also sounds incredibly complex because every time you move a wall or you add something to it yeah. there are real world implications yes. stone tiles yeah. masonry structural structural and the uh, mep as well the plumbing electrical all of that absolutely to, yeah. all of this right yeah, yeah. so 
so i mean in some ways that answers why most companies don't do that like in fact oh, yes. it's it's rare like you know i mean uh making typical um real estate companies make even the smallest of changes like adding a few extra switches yeah which causes extra conduiting etc just like yeah. you know becomes like a this thing so so all of this is possible with the product approach now if we had hundreds of different home products it'd be very difficult right so when we have a home product and we're repeating it 500 times then it's this becomes viable so it's when i asked shrikant ayer the founder of homelane how he fought through the first few years of absolute chaos at his startup shrikant said he focuses on just one thing understanding what you're bad at he explains how he learned and applied this very first principle in his career you spent 13 years at edurite and then it was acquired by pearson and you spent another year there that was 14 years in the space of edtech much before edtech became so popular <laughs> as it was and then before of course became notorious what happened after that so um actually uh, we got acquired twice um I, acha by the way i must tell you uh, i must have the notoriety of being the only person who sold a business not once not twice but three times let me just explain tudor vista became my customer in 2005 2007 they made an offer to acquire us so we merged with tudor vista but i continued as uh, part of the team running the business pearson um invested in us in 2011 and acquired us fully in 2013 I decided that I will continue by being an employee. Uh, I was the CEO for the India business uh, 2013 for about a year and a half, like you said. So they they acquired 100% of the business. So that was the second acquisition. Um, fast forward another three years. Uh, I had already started Homelane, but 2007 I was still in touch with the Pearson folks and friendly with them, etc. 2017 they decided that they wanted to sell that business. for whatever reason the one that they acquired the one that they acquired part of the business not fully part of it there were three or four parts the one part of it they wanted to sell and um so what happened they asked me whether i could find somebody and so in 2017 i found somebody who was none other than uh, byju uh, who acquired that part of the business uh and uh, so the same business i sold to him and before that sold to pearson and before that sold to ganesh trudavista so uh so yeah so stayed at the business for about 14 and a half years after 14 and a half years i think i developed some kind of what i call a, a tech fatigue i said you know what i have struggled with this problem for a long time i i mean make no mistake i'm equally happy and proud of some of the innovations that we done along the way but I think I wanted to challenge uh, myself with something different, and uh, there were two paths in front of me. Were very clear. One was do one more tech, which I knew and I had some inkling of the market of the business, and then or do something totally different. I think the attraction of something which was totally uncharted and totally different uh, was very very too strong for me, um, and I also felt a genuine cons- consumer need. in the home interior space i didn't see any brand how did you come across those was this was this arising from personal experience or did you have some kind of a method to look at opportunities when you were considering where to go towards um so there were three parts to this one was about 
टू इयर्स बिफोर आई स्टार्ट होम लेन एड गॉटन अप वन और टू होम्स डन हैड अ टेरेबल एक्सपीरियंस देन आई नेवर इन माई वाइल्डेस्ट ड्रीम्स थॉट एड आई वुड गो एंड ट्राई एंड सॉल्व दिस प्रॉब्लम बट आई जस्ट फाइल्ड इट अवे सेंग अरे यार दस पंद्रह लाख रुपया खर्चा कर रहा हूँ आई एम स्टिल नॉट गेटिंग एनी प्रिडिक्टेबल आउटपुट हियर Why is this so bad? Why can't there be a brand? I can just blindly go sign up and they do everything and you know give me the key and I'm I'm happy. They're happy. I'm spending ten lakhs. I'll spend eleven lakhs. I'm okay with it. But let me at least give me a good outcome. And there was no brand at that time. I didn't. That was one just filed away. My co-founder came up with this thought, saying, "You know what? People when they buy homes, they have to do wardrobes. They have to do kitchens. Why don't we kind of?" make that a branded play and go and solve that problem that basically came from him the the third the third component was i saw that the existing players had not scaled much godrej interior was doing homes they do still do steel kitchens they do offices furniture they do kids furniture products cots this that you know bunk beds and all of that there was 5 600 crores of revenue which i thought for the size of india was very small i said there is a play here the third then i did i would when started doing first hand research because i was in education for so long i had a lot of contact with builders why builders because they all ran schools or colleges at some point of time in their life so i knew many of them i went and met three four of them i said hey this is the problem statement is this problem statement real or am i smoking something please tell me you know most of them told me that i am i am on to something or at least they felt that i was on to something saying ha there is nobody who's pan india doing something like this then i said okay then i let me try and solve the problem and started off with one experience center in um, bangalore near richmond circle and uh, yeah had a Had lot of learning curves in the first one year, but after that, I haven't looked back. What happened in the first one year? So the first one year was very interesting. Um, I had like a very steep learning curve. I thought this was a crying customer need, and I was right about it. Which means that customers were looking for one neck to catch, one person to solve all the interior problems, somebody who will do. uh you know plumbing and carpentry and electrical and flooring and everything painting and each of, of these means that there are 10 different, different things skills, that can go wrong different skills of blue collar workers i said yaar ye to ho sakta hai why not and we started taking orders chappad phad ke orders we were getting we got like first few so you months, raised some angel funding ah, we raised angel with? funding sequoia was there um aaron capital we raised series a of 4 and 1/2 million dollars that time came to 27 crores um this was 2015 early 2015 six months after we started pretty much not too long so great fantastic stuff very happy orders flowing in and then i realized that this was the most difficult in terms of execution i mean every different skill you add the execution complexity goes up exponentially it doesn't goes up linearly and i said man this is what have i landed myself into i wanted to set right the industry and make customer experience better i was doing exactly the opposite the experience that we were giving to our customers was worse than what they would have got with carpenters 
and I said, this is exactly the the worst thing that can happen. And I pretty much went into some sort of a depression for some time because I said, I'm, and I couldn't even know how to solve the problem. We had we used to get requests like saying, you know, my son loves music. Can you, you're making a court for us. Can you make the court in the shape of a piano? I didn't know where to start. But that order has already been taken now by my sales guy. Now I have to execute that order. It, what I thought would take us two weeks used to take us three months and cost me 2x of what I thought it would cost. So first of all, I was not making money. Second of all, I had a very severely unhappy customer. By the way, I've always taken Net Promoter Score from our customers from day one because I said, if I'm going to change the game, I have to measure if I'm changing the game or not. So I used to take NPS. NPS was minus 27. And that's the first time I, I knew that NPS could be negative. I thought zero was the worst that you could go to. And, and anyway, so I was... I was flummoxed, basically. And then I chanced upon this book, Rohan. I, I chanced upon this book called Uncommon Service. It's a HBS authored book by this uh, lady professor called Frances Frey. She's right now on the uh, global board of uh, WeWork currently, but she used to teach at Harvard then. And she had, she's written this book along with uh, one more person. And the book is very clear. It says, if you are in the service delivery business, you cannot be great at everything that you do. Meaning, you can't give the best price and the best service and the best quality and the best timing. And if you try to do everything the best, at best, you'll be mediocre at everything. That's the premise. So it says, pick a couple of things that are very important to your customer and also pick a couple of things where you necessarily will be bad at. Because unless you're bad at two things, you'll never be great at a couple of things which really matter to your customer. So if you think that you can be average at this, very good at something and fantastic at something else, it won't happen. You have to necessarily be, so the theory is, you necessarily need to be bad at something in your business. Or at least understand what you will be. Yeah. Does that, you, you what does that mean? That Does it mean that once you know what you're bad at, you can afford to ignore it and say no to it? Is that the precursor? No. So I'll tell you what it translated for me. It translated that I need to give something up to uh, become and uh, good and or valuable to my customers. What was I, what did I start the business for? Which I told you in the beginning, right? I wanted to offer predictability. Predictable quality, budget, most importantly, timeline. So I had, in fact, come up with this thing saying, 45 days, I will give you a home back to you. Otherwise, I'll pay you rent for every day of delay. That was my promise to the customer. So I said, if I have to be great at predictability, I need to pick what I want to be bad at. And what I needed to be bad at to be predictable was variety. Because variety was the enemy of predictability in my business. Or rather, variety was the enemy of scale also. When I'm saying enemy, I'm being a bit harsh, but you know what I'm getting. So, A, I started pruning down the services that we were offering. Flooring, no. Civil, no. We still don't do it. Eight years, eight years later, we still don't do. Civil and flooring and plumbing, we don't do. Because it's a very different skill. I said, I can't take the order. I will get the order also, but I'll never be able to execute it. So that needs to be, and that's not scalable. And I I didn't want to do something in Jayanagar, Bangalore. I want to do something across the country. If I can do, can't do it, I don't want to do it at all. So that was the, so A, 
be clear of what you don't want to do. B, we came up with what we call a finite catalog philosophy, which is similar to what you'll see in the IKEAs of the world. Like Mr. Henry Ford said, I'll give you whatever color you want as long as it's black. We said, okay, that's a good place to start from. If the whole world offers 2,000 color options of laminate, which you stick on the wood uh, when you get the finish, we said, I'll, I said, I'll offer 50 colors. I said, 50 colors is a lot. Why do people want 2,000 colors? And 2,000 colors is going to make my supply chain so complicated, my dependence on external suppliers so high that it's bound to fail. It is bound to fail. So I said, I will only have 50 colors. And for every color, I'll have minimum of two suppliers. Minimum. So my criteria for choosing a color is minimum two suppliers. So in a way, that 45 days became our North Star and said, if I can't deliver anything in 45 days, I don't want to offer the service at all. So, so, so to, to go back to your uh, Swan question, I know that's been a longish answer, but the, the point is, I really decide, had to decide if I had to say no to revenue or not. And being a startup and a funded startup as that, uh, uh, at, at that is not the easiest decision to make. But that is the tough call that we took. We said, we won't do certain things. And even in the things that we do, we will offer functionality and predictability far greater than variety and infinite customization. Infinite customization. I mean, you know, go think about the, uh, the court in the shape of a piano customization. No, not going to do that. And that became, so in other words, like, like, like we were chatting earlier today, right? If you buy a modular kitchen from us, the modular kitchen basically is a set of boxes which are put together in your kitchen. We have 300 shapes of boxes, of the core shapes of boxes in the kitchen. Now, that can be assembled in any combination, which is almost infinite. But 301 shape, I will not give. And that is controlled completely on our platform. So that's the real hard call that we took saying we will do what we otherwise call finite catalog or mass customization. We will do customization, but at a mass scale within a certain framework, which allows us to take advantage of the economies of scale. So I can give you one more example of this, not in our industry, but some other industry who have been very good at this, being bad at something to be great at something. Indigo Airlines. Fantastic example, right? They started the last. Today, they are the clear market leaders. From day one, they've been very clear. They never ever have had a business class seat in their life. They said, you want business class? Go buy some other. I'm not giving you. They were also very, very clear that the food that they serve in the flight is not based on how good it tastes or how bad it tastes. It is based on how fast they can serve you and then take it back from you. Believe it or not, even the packaging is thought through so much that why? Because they said we have to be great at one thing and that's getting from point A to point B on time better than anybody else in the industry. So everything else comes around to turn around time. and the I don't ability. mind being bad at food. I don't mind being, you know, even if you take the friendliness in the aircraft when you go in, I mean, I'm sure... We've all used Indigo. We don't have a choice, right? 60-65% is Indigo Airlines. They're not the friendliest crew that you will come across. I mean, if you just think about it, uh, they are business-like. 
but that's the projection that they want you to have also they want because they don't want it to be over friendly ki i'll do whatever you want don't worry you know no i have to get on time i will be they're not curt but they're kind of borderline uh, there i'm saying all this in a positive way because they're very clear that nothing else matters other than getting from point a to point b so it's a huge inspiration for um uh, somebody like us next time you go on indigo flight also you notice when you go in the music that they play is far more calming and soothing when they land the the pace of the music quickens because they want you to get the hell out of there as as fast as possible because they want to turn around in 25 minutes compared to 45 minutes of the airline so that again was a big inspiration saying you know what you need to necessarily be bad at something they don't serve you coffee indigo airlines in a 30 minute flight every other airline you can cajole them to give you something uh, some coffee or tea these guys won't they say sorry i can give you water take it or leave it so they clear that they will they'll be bad at something in the service of being great at being on time which is fantastic so and really it's the acceptance of this as an entrepreneur and as a company that it comes down to right i think we can all you know we all implicitly know that there are things that we are bad at yeah. that our organizations are bad at yeah. but it's the ability to accept that correct and to actually make it part of your culture and to own it so how did, like how correct. did that happen at home lane so two two things right what you said and i'll just put it in a different way the first thing is to look at the mirror and say you can't be everything that your customer wants you to be you are which is hard in a country like india because really? there is this thing of the customer is always right yes, in some senses right yes he is but delivering to every customers every customized need is that is a fool's errand let's take your business i'll just take an example of your business there are multiple media formats that are there there are multiple um um niches that are there that you can go after but you've chosen a niche of saying i'll be contemporary i will talk about uh, big businesses small businesses i will specialize in startups i will come up with news and uh, and something that's helpful and you will only do one story a day you will do only one story a day now that is a statement because again you cannot be everything that everybody wants you to be it's very similar for us very similar for us customers would want everything from you but you have to decide what is it that you are going to stand for and hope like hell that the customer is going to want to come to you for that and uh, thankfully for us it worked this so is embracing your constraints and, and essentially making it making, a strength so making it a strength so then then okay so so the second part uh, which of your question which i didn't answer was how did how could i do this across the org okay today we are 2200 people that time we were some 200 people maybe even 200 people is a lot of people how do you get them to see which is how this quantification of 45 days became very important for me because it became a number see i always say most good quality great quality it's english right anybody nobody is going to tell you they're going to going to give you average quality everybody is going to tell you great quality they'll give you on budget everybody will say i'll give you on budget who's going to say acha no no there will be a variance nobody is going to say it the only thing where i could really thump the table and quantify was on timeline think about it right you can't quantify anything else so that's when i said in fact i became little over aggressive the first 3 months after 30 days or we pay you rent and we paid a lot of rent <laughs> but then i realized that it was not the 
30 days or it was not a quantum that mattered. It was the predictability that was far more important than the quantum. You say 60 also, but you say 60 and give it in 60. So that's when we moved from 30 to 45 and we have stuck to 45. So for my entire team, it became a rallying cry saying that Kuch bhi ho jai, every project has to be delivered in 45 days or under. It was a simple North Star metric. I know that it's easier said than how are you going to deliver it? And that is a different... But there's a certain beauty to it because then when you tell people in the organization that these are the things that we will not do, they're able to draw a straight line from not doing it to, to being 45 days. Correct. So that became... I lost half my designers the first day I decided that I will go from 1,000 laminates to 50 laminates. 50% 50 of them resigned. First day. I said, no. I'm... Reason being because... I said, dear, pagal admi, a computer science engineer, pata nahi kya kar hai. He doesn't know what he's doing in interior design. Who's going to buy from you if you give 50 colors? Nobody will buy. I said, I'm going to offer 45 days. Nobody's offering 45 days today. I will offer 45 days. And I believe that my customer, my TG will choose 45 days over 1,000 colors. That was my bet, basically. And it worked. I mean, it still is working. Shan Kadavil of Fresh to Home cracked a really tough business in a super competitive market. And then he evolved as a CEO and a leader. He talks about scaling a 40-employee organization to a 4,000-employee organization, encouraging his team to be their own CEO, obsessing over the right metrics, and much more. What's your definition of success when you were in your 20s? What was your definition of success when you were in your 20s? So, uh, <laughs> if you reflect back and, and I can, uh, and, and when I thought about it then, the definition of success at that point of time uh, was to be, you know, rich and famous and so on, right? It was like everybody else. As I became older, uh, the definition of success has changed quite a bit, right? In what the, is it today? So today it's really about figuring out uh, impact. Now, whether it's an impact, and it still can have a monetary aspect to it. It could be impact in terms of an, uh, a return to a shareholder, but it is also impact to, you know, the community or the system. I'll give you a very tangible example. I don't want to be uh, preachy. So... I had all the options in the world to be in San Francisco, to be in the US, and I was doing gaming companies. There was, I think I was the largest IPO in the Valley, right, after Google. Uh, but I wanted to come back to India. One, you know, uh, you know, I'd missed my fish curry and rice, but more importantly, uh, I also wanted to be with something that my parents and my family could see that impact. Like my dad and mom and all have relocated back here. They, they can see and relate to what I'm doing there, right? If I'm in support.com or in the early days when so I was success doing... success is tangible as opposed to abstract. It's, that's correct. So, so what you're saying is that uh, people here are saying that, oh, my son Sean, he's in the US, he works for this tech company, he's really successful, but beyond that, you don't really like... And, yeah. and you to, might be... And even, even beyond that, like if you're developing something on crypto with uh, Bitcoin and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. uh, peppered in, yeah. it's hard to explain that to my dad. It's hard to explain that to a I, I would person. argue it's hard to explain to anyone, <laughs> but let's leave it there. Yeah. And then uh, actually I had this entrepreneur pitch me that uh, crypto is like TCP IP and all that stuff, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that stuff. But, uh, uh, and then secondly, when you, when I actually physically met Matthew the first time, I was sold. Not because of, uh, you know, the business in general, because I didn't know how the business would pan out. It was really that life 
that he was doing uh, directly interacting with the fish it's hard life it is really 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 hard life it was enjoyable like you speak to these people there so the the problems that i've had to deal with in my corporate life is am i going to get 7% raise this year or 15% raise this year can i solve attrition problem here what is the bell curve and all that stuff here people are actually working out like can i get two square meals uh, during the two months when there is a trawling season it is an incredibly hard set of problems you're solving and once you get into that problem and that problem can also be a business which earlier i could not do it is quite invigorating right and it is very very different from what i have done before and i love it for that how do you manage to still keep in touch with that aspect of problem solving once your organization fresh home has become so big because now you will be spending most of your time whether you like it or not on the bell curve and on retention and on attrition etc right actually to be fair we don't we don't have and spend too much time on that the reason being is that the way that we have organized the company and something that i have learned from zinger uh is that uh we have organized the company so that each person is a ceo for uh his or uh, own areas right and i'll just give you an, a very specific example so for example uh we've got uh 70% of our time that is doing day to day stuff we then have something called as fth labs which is 30% of people's time and you as a ceo which you know in each unit there would be a ceo so if you're let's say a, a delhi gm then you would be the gm would be the ceo for that particular area are you organized jo- uh, uh, is your leadership organized geographically it's functionally geographically, geographically. geographically. So we do have functional leadership but it's all separate teams because if at 4000 people it's very hard to organize that separately and each pnl is owned directly by the uh, geo head right and also by the other people there so people truly imbibe this whole be your ceo now last year was difficult right last year was difficult not because of us in particular but ecosystem was difficult we did have uh, and most people saw the year before in 2021 salaries were through the roof there was a lot of attrition we saw zero attrition uh materially we have zero attrition in our management team and it's because of the way we have structured it ourselves i mean we are not flashy individuals uh, you know as the co-founders probably because of the <laughs> the number of gray hair that we have but uh, in general people uh, feel part of the whole uh, family they have their own targets they don't get micromanaged and they uh, a very interesting way in which we set goals is they set the goals themselves and then they propagated uh, downward back up so we have okrs those okrs are not top down since uh, when have you been running okrs uh since uh the time that mark introduced it way back in zinger in uh 2000 also that means you've had okrs at fresh to home almost since inception the cultural dna is very similar to zinger so uh there was a time when we were like 20 people sitting in a small chocolate fa- factory back in san francisco and we were doing i guess 5 10 million dollars of revenue and then uh number of games especially farmville grew to be large hits in two years i think we hit more than a billion plus dollars of revenue farmville alone was a billion dollars plus revenue and there was no way to scale a company of 20 50 people back to 3000 4000 people in two years time without this kind of a organization so we've been doing uh you know the be your own ceos which essentially means two things one you have to set goals those goals have to be bottoms up so the ceos themselves and their teams who are also ceos have to bring up those goals and propagate it ourselves they have to commit to it and versus the company forcing it down there give me an example of an example would be for example if you are in let's say a particular geo 
you would have two of your goals that are related to running the company, right? In a steady state fashion, like revenue, retention, or whatever that goals is. And you will get 100%. And it's a, and, and these OKRs are tied to compensation. Otherwise, it's very hard to sort of do that. And then you will get 100% of your pay if you're doing, if you hit these two mainstream ones. But the system will force you to do another two. So there are total four OKRs. And then you would get 140 or 200% or 160% of your pay if you hit those. Now, those are stretch goals. These are moonshots. And these moonshots, you're free to do. And you're also free not to do it. And then you can be you can be a steady performer who achieves what your first two, two out of four. Examples of these moonshots for us was contract farming. So, for example, uh, when we originally started, we only started marine fish and auctions. We didn't have a way of getting into the contract farming. Now, contract farming is about 30% of our overall volume, operates at 60% gross margins, and it's a great new business, right? We've also done similar stuff across the board. And this was board. something that came up as a moonshot bet. But by the team, not by me or not by the management team. It was not a top-down push. And across the board, we have these moonshot bets. And uh, and this is this is great in good times, but it works the best when things are bad, right? When the you know the ecosystem is bad, and I've heard a number of colleagues go through this in the last uh, sort of two years or so, one and a half years or so, right? The team is very cohesive. They stay with you. It is for them. It's not just a a, a company to work for for a pay because they are getting to define rules. And it has got goods and bads. If you don't do it well, you could leave dead bodies running, and that's possible. Uh, there could be friction centrally. This could be between the geos. All of those things are side effects of uh, you know not doing it properly. But uh, it is an area where you could see a huge amount of growth if you have the right people. And the wrong people will leave for a period of time on their own, right? That was my next yeah. question, that culturally, how do you deal while... While it's all right to say that you can be as ambitious as you want or as stable as you want, often what also happens in organizations is that, let's say someone who's chosen to execute on two stretch goals and achieves it and is rewarded like, you know, for it, it can lead to resentment in other people who may not have chosen to kind of do that and therefore, but at the end of the day, and, and that leads to cultural... It does uh, not if it is transparent. Hmm. So our OKRs are in a single sheet that is visible to everybody. So unlike other places, OKR reviews are not private. If you, The way you process the OKRs and you review it is publicly available to everybody. This is again something that I had started in Zynga. We would hire young product managers, you know, out of business unit, I mean, uh, lots of different places, give them like five or $10 million of PNL to run with, and they swim or sink. And, uh, and it's very Darwinian in nature in the sense that uh, because the results are very public, no, there is no sense of resentment because everybody else knows what somebody else has performed, right? And that uh, Darwinian nature can be good and bad, but when it's good, it really works and the company becomes very cohesive. And I've seen that across at least, uh, across, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years right now, right? Where I've run multiple of my companies in the same way. An extension of this, what kind of a person is likely to succeed at Fresh to Home? So the uh, person that would be uh, likely to be succeeding in Fresh to Home is somebody who knows that the larger game is going to be longer term uh, and and somebody who also understands that short-term flashiness, right? Whether it's, you know, I don't know, three times a meal uh, in a day, which interestingly enough, I had introduced in Zynga, uh, Michelin Chef and all that stuff. Uh, or others don't matter 
in the grand scheme of things, right? And they have to look at it from a bigger picture where they will grow with the company, but they have to be entrepreneurial. So if you're not entrepreneurial, if you're not ready to take a risk, and if you, and most of our folks that we hire are being previous entrepreneurs themselves, and people who, you know, are ready to try and fail, but fail fast. Like you can't try like, uh, you know, six months to a year to get an idea uh, to be failure. We'll look at it in three months or six months time. You either make it or you break it. There is also people, the kind of people who join Fresh to Home are people who are okay with chaos. We don't have, despite our seven years, you know, in the in this thing, we are still very chaotic, right? There is no fixed rules, there's no process, there is unlikely that you'll find a very structured orientation. Uh, you will have to figure out this yourself. But the, on the flip side, you'll get huge amount of independence. So much independence that it'll scare you, right? You will essentially be the CEO of that unit, but you'll be gauged based on that. If you're not able to deliver results, you will automatically have peer pressure and you will leave on your own. And that's typically how it works. What's your best kept secret about finding talented people? Because you did say earlier that one of the most important things for an entrepreneur is finding people. Or so at least people who have gone through a you know interview session would me would you know find me asking things like you know why did thousand monkeys cross the puzzle and things like that. But and uh, even at sort of senior VP level people. Uh, I would make them write some code if they are in engineering, of course, of course, not in sales or the others. And I would go through the code myself with them. Some people will get perplexed by it. Uh, the idea is not for them to be hands-on, but uh, the people that I expect to work on should get into the weeds and get into what's going on, right? Uh, and I expect my head of sales who, you know, unfortunately may not understand SQL and may not be able to do it, still be able to poke around, understand what's exactly going on behind the scenes, go to the numbers. Uh, I expect my product managers to be extremely hands-on at a lower level, you know, measure every aspect of, you know, the car, nar, or rar, these are how I measure attention. So being hands-on and being your own CEO, which all boils down, is a core part of how what I look in people. And you would hear that very strongly from people who worked with me. I'm also a people's person in the sense, at the end of the day, my relationship with people goes whether they are in, with us or without us. And I always make sure that we stay connected in some shape or fashion. It might be some small gesture and I value that a lot. Do you have any great open-ended questions that you ask people during interviews? <laughs> I do ask a lot of open-ended questions. I typically ask creativity questions. Uh, Give us examples. An example, uh, I don't know, I typically ask about, you know, uh, you have a, a, a large uh, aircraft that you've just stolen midair and you are asked to find the weight of this aircraft. You know, and you can't use traditional weighing balances because weighing balances would break. And then you got to figure this out. So it's fascinating to see how different people approach so this problem kind of solving, like you know, unstructured problems. Unstructured problem solving are the are the key elements that I like to gauge people on, and it's it's fascinating because uh, I have seen amazing responses, and I continue to be getting new new ideas. Right, so the last one was somebody who told me that uh, you know, uh, just like you are able to find the way to the baby in the mom's womb using a ultrasound. Why don't we do an ultrasound of the whole <laughs> whole aircraft? So it's just fascinating how what people come up with. I like those great ideas. I like those uh, you know energy flows. That's really what keeps us energized. We do know uh, as co-founders that you know 
वी नो दैट वी आर वी गॉन थ्रू मेनी ऑफ दीज आइडियाज एंड वी कैन ओनली गेट ग्रोथ इफ वी फिगर आउट हाउ टू किल आर करंट स्टेबल बिजनेस विद समथिंग एल्स दैट विल बी न्यू इन द सेम डोमेन होपली वी डोंट किल इट टू ड्रास्टिकली सो वी ऑलवेज लुक आउट फॉर दोज आइडियाज सो यू लुकिंग फॉर क्रिएटिविटी प्रॉब्लम सॉल्विंग एंड हैंड्स ऑन एग्जीक्यूशन that's good and i'm connecting it back to that earlier theme you talked about being your own ceo and independence and chaos so essentially if you if i put all of these together you're essentially looking for people who are self directed creative who are or also who are entrepreneurs yeah you kind of describing yeah, many yeah. of the things which are essentially yeah. entrepreneurs we're, we're looking at entrepreneurs that's what we do what's your span of control how many people report to you uh i don't have if i mean the i'm first among the equals with the co-founders so they don't report to me but they report to me essentially uh but beyond that i don't have anybody reporting to me so the co-founders are all i'm assuming functional leads in in different areas yeah so we've got somebody who's handling i i don't but yet i'm omnipresent in <laughs> in this whole uh, system but i don't have people reporting to me beyond that do you believe you are should be can be replaceable at your company absolutely we should be at any point in time but at the same time uh the i have seen uh, i have seen the script play out in multiple different companies right so in any companies where i have seen the founder ceo being replaced before market product maturity is met it leads to absolute chaos i've seen that across my first company i've seen that across multiple different companies so how would you define market product maturity so i think uh, in our scenarios it would be to be fully profitable uh, and essentially ebitda profitable and uh, also seeing a, you know a stable growth rate going forward so once that is re- reached you're saying that you have to then figure out a, a corporate ceo to be able to scale you to the next level is there a time when ceo should think about stepping back i think a ceo should think about stepping back when you're not growing fast enough or when you're not able to hit the shareholders needs for that right and you have to be cognizant of that because at the end of the day you as a ceo have got x amounts of time and opportunities and you've tried that and at that point of time if it's not leading to a success you have to be fair to the shareholders right and your stakeholders in general how do you balance that with something that you said earlier which is say it's a company which has yet to achieve uh market maturity fit yeah and it's also a ceo who hasn't like you know grown the company fast enough so i think so, so would a new ceo be able to be any because then you're still you still have that risk that the new ceo is inheriting an organization which is still not in many ways mature enough i think scale, the, right? the most important thing is to make sure that you have enough people who can call the emperor naked right and you need to know that whether the company is not hitting those milestones because inherently it's a hard enough problem when you pitch a different idea back to investors it will never work uh, or is this market going to take longer time and is a different execution approach that is there if it is a latter of course you need to get somebody else who can execute better than you if it's a former you got to figure out pivot find new ideas and so on uh and i'm fortunate with uh my co-founders who can call the uh, emperor naked any time in the thing and i'm also fortunate to have a board who is essentially uh quite supportive in that regard right and managing the board is also equally the uh, uh an important function of the ceo 
and uh, and the board has to be honest with you in good times uh, you don't need a board right is there to pat your backs and say good things and you know have good dinners and so on but when in bad times and especially when you're in the trenches that's when you need a board and i've seen that happen across my career right for all the sort of uh, you know success that you would see almost every year there would be the cliffhanger moment when you have only two months of runway remaining you will have to figure out options or you'll have to figure out various different things and that's going to happen to you and regardless of whatever you tell externally that is a reality of being an entrepreneur and the only people who can support you at that point is you know beyond your family and everybody else uh, is either your co-founders because they are there to share you and the board and so it's important for you to be very honest with the board versus using them to pitch them and you know pitching stops the moment they enter your company as a board member uh and then you it's best to give them only the bad stuff uh, because that's the only area that they can help you with right the good stuff is you can give it as a general email and others that they can continue to praise you and take credit for it and all that stuff but reality is that it it happens only when you start sharing that kind of uh, you know bad news with them and i'm going back to your old question the moment you have that board and you have that uh, co-founders or others who can tell you that you're not really doing it and it's not because of macro reasons or because of idea reasons or pivot reasons it's because of execution that's the point you should quit